This is John Howell Essential Cuts, your daily rundown of the best of the best from today's show on 890 WLS. So a statewide law enforcement coalition, I believe that was the Illinois Law Enforcement Alarm System, they sent, and that's an umbrella agency uh, for Illinois police departments, they essentially sent out a preliminary sort of note, and this happened on Monday, that Chicago police may need assistance should an emergency unfold during the disagreement between Lori Lightfoot and the FOP over the vaccination mandate for all city employees here in the city. So despite that call to suburban law enforcement agencies, county sheriffs, seeking potential help here in Chicago, um, no, three sheriffs said they, in fact, will not send their deputies to the city. All right, so that's the backstory. So I thought we should reach out and talk to at least one, and that brings us to our next guest, DuPage County Sheriff James Mendrick joins us here on the Big 89, sir. You are one of the uh, county sheriffs who said, no thanks. Would you explain your reasoning to us, please? Yeah, so nothing has changed in the form of emergencies. Uh, we'll never say no to emergency. I mean, if there's a plane crash, a big burning building, you know, SWAT costs, we assist with anything uh, of that nature. That's what we've always done. Uh, what we didn't agree to is funding and in, in backfilling a planned police shortage based on somebody's interpretation of a, a vaccination rule or law or mandate. And that makes it tough on us. You know, I'm already down many deputies in my environment. Uh, I have so many retirements on the boards that for the next two years in perpetuity, everybody who can retire is going to be retiring, and it's going to make that gap of employment even worse. The academy has been closed down for, you know, almost two years because of COVID, so the waiting lists are long. Really hard to recover people. And when all this stuff happens in Chicago, we're at least DuPage, we're on the border, so we get the overspill. We get all that additional crime. Uh, we have a lot of residents in our correctional facility that are now from Cook County because of that dynamic. And during those times where we would need our people the most, they were making requests, well, would you guys be able to send in uh, your officers during those times to help with our call services and stuff like that because uh, we could be short over this. And that's really kind of an abnormal thing in our culture to do that. Uh, just, there wouldn't be enough a way to get enough people to even help them with that problem, let alone, you know, I made an analogy for on a couple stations. It's like uh, football. It's like if the Bears, uh, you know, trained their whole season, did all their games, it's Super Bowl day, and then you bench the entire team and tell the Green Bay Packers to come and play the game for us, and you have one day to work with this new coach and playbook, and I hope you win. Uh, it's just like that for us. We don't know their territory, their beats, their high crime areas, their low crime areas, uh, places to be aware of, um, street names, uh, you know, fastest routes to get there. So it would be a real challenge. It would be chaos trying to pull all that off. Does that endanger your deputies if that was to happen? Oh, certainly. It certainly would, too. And, and I, I honestly, I would, have, I would have some fear, too, of my deputies over there getting into uh, arrest scenarios where, you know, I have Bob Berlin. He's an excellent state's attorney. I don't have anything to worry about here. But there's different challenges in Cook County. And if we make a, what we believe a proper arrest, but then there's no prosecution or that person's not charged, 
um, then it, it leads to a lot of potential lawsuits where they come back and say, if you didn't get, if you didn't charge me, then why did you, you know, wrestle me to the ground and put me in jail? You scuffed my shin and I'm suing you. Yeah. So, I mean, we could run into a lot more scenarios like that too. So at my office, I've been elected now, I'm a 25 year vet. I've been elected three years and I got 400 deputies and I don't have one use of force complaint from one citizen so far. Nice. I could see that dynamic changing greatly if we were plummeted into the Chicago ordeal, what they're dealing with over there. Um, you know, that, that isn't what my deputies signed on from. And conversely, many deputies now are ex-Chicago PD, Cook County sheriffs, and Cook County agencies because of what's going on out there. Uh, that is the one shining light that I have is for now until that dries up. I'm getting a lot of the employees from Cook County into DuPage County, both corrections and patrol. That voice belongs to DuPage County Sheriff James Mendrick. He's joining us here on WDS. This is not a confrontational question. I truly want to know the answer. Without an emergency declaration, can any governor, red or blue, order a county sheriff to redeploy his assets? No. No, absolutely not. I'm a, I'll be honest. I don't have an administrator or a governor who's my boss. It's you. It's the people of DuPage County that elect me as my boss. That's why I really do talk to a lot of citizens, a great deal of citizens. And I believe I'm being representative of what our DuPage County citizens want. I mean, there's always that 2% or 5% that seem really loud, but <laughs> I do try to respond to the 90, 95% of the people. And I want to just bring one thing to your attention because this part, this defies all logistical semblance to me. So if, if, if the mayor, the entire reason that she stated on television for putting all of these officers off duty was because the citizens had a right or an expectation or a mandate to have vaccinated city employees, and that included the police. So 100% of the reasoning, right, was to take potentially unvaccinated people who didn't log into that system and register. You wanted them off the street, not able to touch your citizens. So why then would you then call all these outside agencies that haven't been on that system, don't have that card, to replace the ones that you just put off work for that same reason? You're going to replace them with a workforce that has the same systemic problem that you didn't like? What was the problem to begin with then? I, I, I don't understand. How is that logical? What is the policy in DuPage County regarding uh, public employees and vaccinations? Right now, uh, there's been no mandate for us to make our employees get vaccinated. I'm very much against it. I'm, I'm for the vaccine. I took the vaccine myself. Uh, everybody who wanted to take it, uh, we made sure we facilitated that for them. We probably got 65% vaccinated through that process that we're known of. I don't ask who's vaccinated, who's not, but we assume that from what we're hearing from people, probably another 10 to 15% got vaccinated in other places. So we're probably close to 75, maybe 80% at our agency vaccinated. And that last, you know, 15 to 20%, uh, they have a myriad of reasons why they don't want to take a vaccination. Some believe that could be a problem for them with some kind of a, you know, having children. Uh, some, it's a religious issue, and they're looking for religious exemptions. Uh, and, and then it becomes, I, I don't think it's fair for the health, whoever the health agencies are, or governors, or whoever makes these decisions to make these mandates, it's not fair to just push this on law enforcement and say, penalize these people if they don't do it because then i'm the point of contact so think of it like as a call for service i'm supposed to say you're going to take this vaccine or i'm going to fire you and what's the employee going to say i'm really afraid of it i feel it could hurt me 
tell me what's in it, tell me why I have to do it. And, and those are now a big myriad of answers that I look really stupid on because I can't answer <laughs> any of them. Yeah. I was actually at my doctor earlier today, and I got a shingle shot of vaccination and a, the annual flu uh, vaccine. And, you know, I've heard good and bad things about both of those. But at this point, I think even dealing with what I deal with in this job, I'm pro-vaccine. I, if I was a cop, I'd certainly want a vaccination just be based on mm-hmm. my interaction with the public, and I'd be first in line for it or any extra ones. But I, I really I like your analysis. I like your thought process. I like your lucidity, and I appreciate your time, and thanks for jumping on this afternoon. Much appreciated. Absolutely. Thank you for having me on your show. Really appreciate it. You're listening to John Howell, Essential Cuts, on 890 WLS. Thank you, Kim. It's your afternoon wrap here. Truth, justice, the American way, and a little context regarding the events of the day. Rahm Emanuel is on the hot seat in D.C. today, seven years to the day after Laquan McDonald and that incident took place. Bad timing for the former mayor. And he did point out that all big cities have their own problems. No city of any size has not confronted the gulf and the gap that exists between police practices and the oversight and accountability. I made efforts of them. They missed the mark because they totally missed how level, how deep that distrust is. That audio is coming into our technical crew right now. We will turn it and have it through the speakers in due time uh, as soon as possible. But there were some uncomfortable moments for Rahm, Man- Rahm Emanuel in D.C. today. I caught a U.S. attorney for the Northern District here in Illinois, John Lausch, on Channel 11. Political corruption, gun violence, financial crimes, hometown terrorism, just a brief selection of the categories of cases brought in the last four years by the U.S. attorney. And uh, currently, he has uh, the former 22nd Ward Alderman, Munoz, up on fraud charges. Meanwhile, three current city council members, Austin, Burke, and Daley Thompson, are under indictment or investigation. He was appointed by Trump back in 2017, and Biden, of course, as is every new president's uh, want, essentially had a blanket order to essentially send us your resignation uh, letters, going to fire all U.S. attorneys appointed by the previous administration. This happens regularly when the administration goes from red to blue or blue to red. But uh, both of our senators, Dick Durbin and Duckworth, Tammy Duckworth, both lobbied President Biden to exempt Lausch because they thought he was doing such a stand-up job. How long he's going to remain in the job is unclear. Durbin's office said yesterday that the search process hasn't even started yet, meaning that perhaps he'll just stay in that position. Lausch made it clear in the interview yesterday with Channel 11 that he's happy to continue in the job, at least for the time being. I thought he had some very prescient things, prescient things to say about Chicago, so let me just, let me just uh, take a couple minutes to play you some excerpts from Channel 11's interview with him. In this day and age, and we all realize this, it doesn't need reiterating, obviously, but because of a confluence of different situations, almost the perfect storm, crime is escalating, and then some. And the criminals feel totally emboldened. And our U.S. Attorney for the Northern District of Illinois realizes that. I don't know if I can point to a a traceable cause, but one thing we've clearly seen... um in the violence is that the offenders are are very emboldened is the best word and i've used it over and over again and others have as well why 
Well, he didn't say so, but I will, because the police are overwhelmed, and we made it an untenable job. Shame on us. We did it to ourselves in the city. Second, can you give us an example or two? This is a U.S. Attorney John Lausch. It was one example. We charged a murder case the other day, a murder of Native racketeering, and it involved a murder of someone in broad daylight um, in the middle of the afternoon. Uh, we see carjackings that take place at all hours of the day, and so that's just one of, you know, one of one of the things that we've seen with the offenders. That's a murder in broad daylight. What Superintendent Brown has brought to our attention a couple of different times in the last six months, maybe even longer than that, is that because of the state's attorney's decisions, uh, we have people charged with murder who are released back on the street, and here comes the retaliation. You know, once the, one, once the accused murderer, the accused murderer, is back on the street, those who believe he is the murderer now will retaliate against the accused murderer. And that spikes crime in this city, too. It's a, it's a stupid, stupid policy. So, again, U.S. Attorney John Lausch talking on Channel 11. How do we hold them accountable? The one thing that, that we've emphasized on the federal side is really how important it is that we provide a baseline level of accountability, right? I mean, we, we need to ensure that when people are driving violence, they're pulling the trigger, they're possessing the guns illegally, they're putting guns into the hands of people who shouldn't have them, that we hold those people accountable. Now, they didn't get into this very much on Channel 11, but as far as guns, we have, what, 250 million, 300 million plus weapons in the United States of America. By and large, the great majority of those are in the hands of law-abiding citizens who have all the paperwork, all the cards, all the documentation, all the background checks, all set. It's all done. It's fine. But how do we get the guns out of the people to pay no attention to the paperwork, to the laws, to just just common decency? The illegal possession of firearms is something that's critically important because what we see is that most of the shootings that happen are people from people who shouldn't have the guns in the first place. Um, right. And they know that they know they're a felon and they shouldn't be illegally possessing those. And then ultimately, the people that are shooting the firearms, right, that are killing people. Those are, you know, kind of the worst of the worst. And those are the offenders that we spend most of our time on. And one more from the uh, U.S. attorney for the Northern District, John Laus from Channel 11. What about the systemic ongoing corruption in the city of Chicago, County of Cook? Back to Elliot Ness. What are we doing about that? I do think it is it's important for public officials to know that, um, you know, as, as the FBI and our other law enforcement partners in our office, um, you know, we we receive allegations regarding conduct and, and we take a look at that at that and we scrub it and we try and figure out whether there is, you know, illegal conduct that's going on. And it's something that has happened in the office from the time when I was a you know, when I was a regular prosecutor up until now. And it's going to continue to be a priority in our office given that the problem that we, we'd see in Chicago is, is a stubborn one of, of public officials um, who, you know, from, from time to time, um, they're using their, you know, their public office for their own private gain. Really? I've not, I've not noticed that, have you? All right, 514 here at WDLS. Coming up next, the Labor Department's most recent job openings and labor turnover summary suggests that 4 million Americans are quitting their jobs each and every month. This is, uh, this is not just an aberration. This is a trend. It has become known as the Great Resignation. So why are 50% of the workers, and maybe you, maybe me, 
thinking about making a career change? Well, it comes down to two or three categories. We'll discuss the same with our next guest, who is the CEO, President and CEO of an outfit called Catalyst, and they commissioned this survey, and she has the inside scoop on why so many of us, after this pandemic, even before the pandemic's over, obviously, are thinking, you know what? I don't necessarily want to go back to the olden days. Not that I like it better now, but I've seen the light, and I'm doing a little recalibration. You're listening to John Howell, Essential Cuts, on 890 WLS. This is conducted by Harris Poll in conjunction with CNBC and a global firm called Catalyst. Essentially, roughly, 4 million Americans are quitting their jobs each month in a trend that now has become known as the Great Resignation. There's a variety of reasons why 50% of us want to make a career change. Basically, the pandemic has um, given us a new sense of what we really want to do with the rest of our life. Friend of mine, let's welcome the president and CEO of the firm I mentioned, Catalyst, to the program. Lorraine Harriton joins us from Manhattan. Uh, we all know the old phrase, Take this job and shove it. We could have used a little bit more of that, guys. But we all know the old phrase, take this job and shove it. But what are employees now demanding of employers? What are these 50% of Americans surveyed looking for, Lorraine? Uh, well, employees are demanding that they have flexible work. Um, in fact, in our survey, 76% of employees want flexible work. They are also looking for more empathy and understanding from their employers, particularly working parents um, are looking for that. And if they don't if they haven't received that, if they didn't during the pandemic, they are also looking to um, to um, move on. You know, in this report, and I thought it was very comprehensive, but let me ask you to elaborate on the 41% of those surveyed who say they're considering leaving their current job because the current company has not cared about their concerns. Are they talking about personal concerns, child care, or you know, sort of a, a political or social concern they have with the company they're working for, or both? Um, what we surveyed was really focused more on their personal concerns. Um, in fact, working parents in particular were most impacted by this. Um, they, if the employer did not understand the significant burden they had to do work-life balance when they had children at home and they didn't help them with being more flexible, or if they didn't help them potentially with the childcare burdens, if they weren't empathetic to their situation, then they were impacted um, and felt that um, it's time to make a change. So um, companies that have really leaned into flexibility and helped people out through the pandemic and also on an ongoing basis are doing that and have provided benefits in um, in these areas um, are um, retaining their employees at a higher level. Lorraine, out of the 50% of workers who say they want to make a career change, any ballpark percentage on those who will take definitive action? Um, well, we, we have what's in the survey, but we know we're going through this great resignation and the numbers are very high. So people are really um, doing that. And I see it even in my own personal family. And I have uh, nieces and nephews. One's moving to another location and leaving their job. Another one is 
taking their job with them. Another one because they felt that they they wanted more flexibility, they're leaving. So I think we can all look to um, people we know and see that there's a real change. People are people are relooking at their life. They're looking at work life effectiveness. They're taking the time to really consider what's important to them. Um, and we have a labor shortage going on, so they you know they have the latitude to to do that. Twenty-two percent of the people we serve are looking at starting their own businesses. So um, we have people really relooking at um, how they look at the world. But I also, you know, think we have an amazing opportunity here to really reimagine what work is all about, and we're really encouraging um, employers to lean into this change and reimagine work. And as a organization that catalysts which is focused on advancing women in the workplace we've been focused on flexibility for a very long time and when i talk about flexibility we're talking about location and also when you work and how you work that's focused more on productivity than it is on how many hours you're actually logging because women have in general had more of the burden at home of the unpaid labor so um, so having flexibility is really important to them. So we see this as an opportunity to really build a, a better workplace, um, not only for women, but for everyone to have a, more balance in their lives. Lorraine, the working women that I've talked to specifically about this say it's not just uh, something they want. It's essential to their continued participation in the workforce. They need the flexibility. Well, you know, if you look at the history of um, women in the labor market, we know that flexibility is really critical for long-term involvement in, in building people's careers. So um, this pandemic has just sort of shone a light on that. As we get back to a, a new normal, people are demanding more from that. And, you know, we see even, even in the political environment with the, you know, the legislation is going through, child care is really becoming essential, you know, part of what's needed in the 21st century. Lorraine, thank you for your time. I thought it was a very comprehensive uh, study, very interesting. Uh, we're going to tweet it out and put it up on our socials so our readers can read more. The categories between working women and working men are quite illustrative as well. Thank you very much. Appreciate your time. Thank you, John. I appreciate it as well. This is John Howell, Essential Cuts on 890 WLS. A three-judge federal panel ruled yesterday that the Mexican-American Legal Defense and Education Fund and the Illinois Republican Party should, in fact, be able to offer up their own map. So when I saw the headline, I thought, wow, this is, this is pretty good news. However, this ruling is a bit moot, I think. Let's see what Austin Berg thinks, Vice President, Illinois Policy Institute, and a returning expert here on WDS Austin. The court threw out a prior remap law from May, not the new one passed in August. So what hope do we have that maybe we can put an end to gerrymandering? The hope would be the challenge on the second map. So just so listeners understand, the legislature in the spring, prior to a deadline after which they would have to go to an independent commission, passed a map almost knowing it would have been thrown out because it was based on uh, old census data. And once the new census data came out, they drew another map. So the judge threw out the initial map, which many people expected, but also said, hey, uh, Mexican-American Legal Defense Fund and Illinois Republicans, you should submit your own maps for consideration. And the hope here would be that this sends a message in that second case against that second map, right? Uh, but, but again, this comes down to Illinois politicians, especially the governor, who promised that this yeah. would not happen. Yeah, they always do, don't they? Pimp, they always do. Yeah. 
true contempt for Illinois voters. And I, and I don't say, you know, uh, you know, lying or misleading. It is a contempt. And uh, because they promised this and went completely back on it, if this was being done by by, by Republicans, and I don't like to play this double standard card a lot, but it totally applies in this case. If Republicans were doing this, the top media story nationwide would be that this is racist voter suppression. Well, we've heard that. We've heard that. We've seen that headline out of Texas uh, in the last couple days out of other deeply red states. But it is true that. To the victor go the spoils. The Democrats are screaming; they're out of their minds about the Indiana redistricting. You know, essentially, these guys pick their own constituents, block by block, and sometimes house by house. Exactly, and there's no such thing as good gerrymandering and bad gerrymandering. <laughs> it's just gerrymandering, and 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 it's bad all around. And that's why Illinois voters, Democrats and Republicans, uh, uh, in poll after poll, say you need independent maps. And yet you have lawmakers that refuse to listen to them. Uh, and the, the recourse that Illinois have is to vote them out. And here's the problem, though. In half of Illinois House races over the last decade, there was no opponent. Yeah, incumbency. And it's going to so get a little have, worse. Uh, it's going to get worse. Exactly. Are, there, are there any states that do not depend on politicians to redraw maps, maps every 10 years? Yes, there are many states. If you look to our neighbor in Iowa, they use a computer to draw them every 10 years. And, and here's the crazy thing. The University of Illinois has a department for computerized map making that you and I pay for as Illinois taxpayers. Uh, and, they, and we refuse to use that. We still, we still go the old Madigan-style uh, cartography in Illinois. Austin Berg is here, VP of the Illinois Policy Institute. It's been a while since we talked to him. Did the reason, and back to this, uh, the federal court intervening in the early map, the one that was scrapped months ago, is it safe to say the real issue as far as throwing that map came down to whether Democrats drew enough Latino districts? I'm trying to, I know I'm trying to get inside the three judge federal panel's head here, but why do you suppose they dismissed it? The real issue is there's a huge variance in the census data that they used and the uh, census data that was official that eventually came out. That was, right. that was the real issue there. But of course, both uh, Mexican American Legal Defense Fund and the NAACP say about the new map, that it disenfranchises Latino and black voters. And the way that works, right, is think of it like fingers on a hand coming out of Chicago or predominantly uh, uh, areas of people of color. You kind of lump those folks in with whiter suburbs uh, to keep those, to, to protect Democrat incumbents. But that disenfranchises a lot of black and Latino voters, and that's what those groups are arguing. Who do you think gets the worst of this on the Republican side of the world? Kinsinger? Too early to say. I think we haven't seen the final congressional maps. Uh, there was the talk of this sort of crazy 15 to 2 map that some people have been throwing out. I think it remains to be seen, uh, kind of who gets the short end of the stick. If I, I know that they're, they, LaHood is going to apparently have to combat Mary Miller in one district, if I'm reading things correctly. And I think the Democrats would be, you know, from a strategic standpoint, publicity standpoint want to keep mary miller around yeah i would agree with that uh and that that was in fact the case i believe with the congressional map the draft that came out late last week uh but my guess is that that was sort of a head fake and kind of a signal to all the players in the room that were serious and illinois voters will of course you know at the last minute very little deliberation see a map probably sometime this week the the clock is ticking here, Austin. When do they have to decide? Another veto session is, I think, two or three more days this time around. Then there's one more abbreviated one, and by that time, the clock runs out. End of game, right? 
Uh, pretty much. I mean, pretty quickly here, we're going to have to get uh, districts so that people can collect signatures to get on the ballot. So there is kind of a natural deadline to all of this. But yeah, I think we should expect this to be wrapped up this year. One more question, just because you're very well versed in this. Why do all the attempts to deal with this on a Illinois constitutional level fail every four years? Well, if you remember, Illinoisans collected hundreds of thousands of signatures to get a constitutional amendment on the ballot uh, and dropped those off at the Secretary of State's office in 2016. Mike Madigan, a, a close consigliere of Mike Madigan, filed suit to kick that off the ballot, and it was. And it is, it is really because our citizen initiative is so narrow, the things they allow you as Illinois voters to get on the ballot, that, that criteria is so narrow that it's very hard to get anything meaningful, like, like fair maps on the ballot, like pension reform on the ballot, without going through the political process. And it's very difficult in the political process to stick your neck out saying, I'm for fair maps, because if you lose, it's sort of like you come at the king, you best not miss, right? If you lose, that, you, that has a, uh, a, huge effect yeah. on the district that is eventually drawn for you. Yeah. So it's not in politicians' interests, it's in voters' interests. Uh, and that was the appeal of Pritzker, is that, hey, this guy has independent money, he's outside of the system, he's going to come in, and he has, uh, you know, the gumption to to pass this Fair Maps initiative, and he's been completely absent on it. Yeah. I, I agree with that. I've played those clips a thousand times, I think, from when he was running for governor. Um, with the new configuration of the state Supreme Court, would the next initiative have a better chance of passing? Uh, or at least getting on the ballot is what I mean. I think even uh, in that past case, it was there was really sort of a mistake in drafting. I don't know if even that would have got on. It's tough to say. Even 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 pension reform uh, that should have been constitutional was tossed out unanimously. Even Republican judges voted against it. The Illinois Constitution is not well worded, um, and we we really need to get some constitutional amendments in to empower judges to make the right decisions. Uh, before asking them to kind of go against the document itself, you know. Austin, thanks for your time and your expertise. Much appreciated. Tell John we said thanks hello. Appreciate it. Will do. Take care. Austin Berg, VP of the Illinois Policy Institute here on WLS. You're listening to John Howell, Essential Cuts, on 890 WLS. Always great to talk to Mike Emanuel, Fox News Chief Washington Correspondent who sits in the anchor chair, high noon on Sunday, most weekends, on Fox News. Mike, welcome back to the Big 89. How are you, sir? John, thanks so much for having me. Doing great. Well, I have three subjects. First up is uh, Steve Bannon. Yesterday, the House Select Committee, investigating January 6th, moved to punish him. Essentially, they voted yesterday to send the report recommending contempt charges to the full House. Now, we've heard the excerpt from his podcast on January 5th, if my listeners miss that, let me refresh their memory real quick. All hell is going to break loose tomorrow. Just understand this. All hell is going to break loose tomorrow. It's not going to happen like you think it's going to happen. Okay? It's going to be quite extraordinarily different. And all I can say is strap in. The war room, a posse, you have made this happen, and tomorrow it's game day. So strap in. Is that essentially the foundation to wanting more from Steve Bannon? What he said on a podcast, I don't quite, I don't see this as the Kennedy assassination. It seems very clear what happened to me on January 6th. Why is he part of this? Well, they believe that um, he has answers, that he was a part of the planning for January 6th, and perhaps that podcast uh, provides a, a hint that he knew what was coming. Uh, so, 
Here, here's a little insider scoop about Capitol Hill. When the party in charge says, we want to talk to you, and you say, nah, not that interested, that really upsets people who think they're pretty important. So uh, that sets the stage for a vote tomorrow in the House uh, on this contempt resolution, basically trying to punish Steve Bannon for, you know, saying no to Capitol Hill uh, while President Trump is trying to exert executive privilege. So um, it sets up quite a showdown. I I guess, you know, again, will any Democrats just say, this is ridiculous, a waste of our time, I'm not going for it, or does Nancy Pelosi have every vote on her side of the aisle? My sense is she has every vote on her side of the aisle. Um, And then the question is, how many Republicans could potentially be interested in going along as well? The Liz Cheney's of the world, the Adam Kinzinger's, uh, who are, you know, searching for facts, who are part of the investigation. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if a bunch of Republicans go along or maybe just a couple um, and how the vote breakdown goes. Well, there must be more from behind closed doors that I'm not hearing about because it seems like a waste of time to me. And also, just one more thing on this subject, I heard Senator Hawley point out that Eric Holder, and please bring my listeners up to date on this, he, of course, uh, resisted calls, subpoenas, for what, six years back during Fast and Furious, the Obama administration? Yeah, absolutely. So that frustrated the heck out of Republicans, and they wanted to go after him constantly. And um, in terms of your observation of wasting time, um, well, that would not be the first time that Congress has wasted time. Yeah, Let the record yeah. reflect that. So um, you may be onto something, but uh, still, when you're the party in charge, even if you're only in charge by a few votes, um, you quite often do political things uh, that may benefit your side of the aisle, and uh, yeah. embarrassing Republicans could be one of them, and so they're attempting to do that. Is there going to be a lot of effort, and this is not a political question, it may sound like it, but really the only thing that I think should come out of the select committee is not necessarily how did it happen, because I think everybody can see how it happened, but how are they going to beef up security at the Capitol for the next time? How much money will they allocate or recommend that that become allocated? And also a new set of essentially rules of engagement. Is that part of the discussion? It should be. It certainly should be. Uh, we know that there's been a whole lot of, you know, probing of the Capitol Police and who's leading and how they are going to make sure this never happens again. Um, and, and I think that is a legitimate concern from folks on both sides of the aisle. Because remember, people on both sides of the aisle were scared to death when people were pouring through the window uh, into Capitol Hill and nobody was quite sure whether they were heavily armed or had explosives or who the heck they even were at that point. Um, so it, it certainly showed a vulnerability to our adversaries um, of the U.S. Capitol complex. And so that should be first and foremost is making sure it never happens again to, you know, one of the ultimate symbols of this country's democracy. And so um, it certainly needs to be front and center. But, uh, you know, sometimes people on the Hill get distracted and, uh, you know, make it uh, influenced by other issues. Yeah. Yeah. Mike Emanuel is here, Fox News Chief Washington Correspondent. He'll be in the anchor chair high noon on Sunday again, Central Time. A few years ago, I thought for sure Mitch McConnell was going to lure uh, Manchin over to the GOP. I heard a rumor again today that he has an exit strategy if uh, the Dems push him a little too hard. Can you uh, corroborate that? Yeah, so uh, 
it leaked out that uh, Joe uh, Joe Manchin, excuse me, was was basically telling people, okay, you you want to push me, you want to say I'm not a Democrat, I could you know go independent and potentially caucus with Republicans, and guess what? That would make the Republicans the majority party and give Mitch McConnell power, uh, taking it away from Chuck Schumer. Uh, so it seemed to me like a huge back off by Joe Manchin. Uh, of course, uh, my colleagues and many others went chasing after Joe Manchin all afternoon this afternoon, and he was irritated uh, about it. But, uh, you know, he, he called it bull, and I'll leave it at that because this is a family program. Um, but, you know, I think it was a warning shot to, uh, you know, the Bernie Sanders of the world. Oh, okay. You want to, you know, question me and, and whether I'm a loyal Democrat? Fine. Maybe I'll go independent, and then maybe you guys will like being back in the minority party. Wow. Is he close with Angus King of Maine? Uh, I think they do have a pretty good rapport. And so, you know, I think, um, you know. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that would just, as as I used to say on House of Cards, if you don't like the way the table is set, just turn over the table. Exactly right. And it's not the first time that this would have happened. Uh, I remember uh, Jim Jeffords, I guess, early 2000s did it, and it really created an earthquake. And I remember Harlan the late Specter. Har- Harlan Specter, sure. Um, and so uh, you never know. And we're watching it closely. How did our former mayor, Ron Manuel, do in front of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee today? My understanding is he held his own reasonably well. Uh, it wasn't that uh, sticky uh from what, everything I've read and heard, uh, I was chasing a couple other stories as well. So I think I think he held his own okay. Um, and uh, the Democrats are obviously just barely the majority. So uh, as long as he didn't embarrass himself with the majority Democrats, uh, one would think he should be okay. But um, you know, I think there are a lot of folks still digging into his nomination, and uh, there are some on the Republican side of the aisle who wouldn't mind embarrassing uh, President Biden uh, with a, with a defeat, um, but it's not entirely clear that that would come about. Uh, you know, it was seven years to the day of the shooting here in Chicago uh, that he was on the Hill, obviously, a terrible a bit of timing for Rahm Emanuel, but Bob Menendez, the Democrat senator out of New Jersey, brought that up first. Do you think that was to inoculate him against other questions from uh, Republicans on the same subject? Do you remember what happened seven years ago? Because it seemed like that was an unfriendly sort of statement from a fellow Democrat. Yeah, I think uh, sometimes it's a, you know, I don't know their history uh, Rom was obviously Roman uh, Capitol Hill before he became Chicago mayor, and and maybe they didn't like each other a whole lot then. So maybe it was a warning shot. Uh, but yeah, sometimes uh, the the party leading the hearing will bring something up in uh, you know a reasonable way to allow the nominee to dismiss it and then to try to neutralize or, or, you know, prevent further questioning, intense questioning by the other party. And so, yeah, he was asked about uh, the 2014 uh, shooting when he was um, Chicago mayor. And, um, you know, it, it was interesting that it was brought up by the foreign relations chairman uh, asking him to address that. Mike Emanuel, I'll be watching high uh, noon on Sunday and uh, check your uh, coat tie combo as I do every Sunday. <laughs> Thank you, my friend. I appreciate it. You're the best. All right. We appreciate your time and your analysis. Much appreciated. We'll watch more on Fox News. Thanks, Mike. Take care, John. Thank you. This is John Howell, Essential Cuts on 890 WLS. 
I've lost track of this. I didn't think it was going to be a big controversy. Apparently, I was wrong, and I don't think it involves a lot of people, but it's a very, very, very squeaky wheel. The controversy surrounding Dave Chappelle's remarks in his latest stand-up special has intensified as of yesterday, my understanding, because the Netflix co-CEO apparently did a lot of uh, media interviews in which he admitted that he screwed up in his response to some staff members and other people joining the concern of the staff members, but reiterated that he supports Dave Chappelle. Well, of course, Dave Chappelle is making a boatload of money for Netflix, of course. Uh, so let's uh, let's get the latest from Marco Delacava. He's a USA Today national correspondent in Los Angeles, and he has been covering this story from the get-go. Marco, welcome to the uh, Big 89. What exactly did the co-CEO of Netflix admit to yesterday? Yeah, it was last night, and essentially he admitted to um, miscommunicating to his staff. So when the staff expressed concern that, that the company should think twice about standing behind Dave Chappelle, he dismissed it out of hand and stood by Dave Chappelle. He still stands by Dave Chappelle and the show, but he essentially... Uh, went on the offensive last night and said, look, I should have been more sensitive. I should have said, look, I understand this is offensive to you or this might cause you pain. Uh, having said that, I, I support free speech, and, and therefore a show like this uh, should should remain available to people. We're not pulling it down. That's essentially what happened. Are they going to start uh, adding a disclaimer or anything of this nature? In other words, if this show uh, offends your sensibilities, we're deeply apologetic of that? Well, that is, in fact, I think, uh, one of the as yet still unclear demands that uh, that this virtual walkout uh, might be presenting to the uh, co-CEO, uh, that there are disclaimers that, that says that you might find this offensive. Uh, be interesting to see if they entertain that notion. You would think that if they do go down that road, you, you might have to put that on uh, just about any comedy special. Well, comedy is in the eye and the ear of the beholder, like all art. Um, how how's the virtual walkout progressing today? How many numbers of employees are taking part in this? Do we think? Well, it's a very good question, and it remains unclear. A colleague of mine is actually uh, on site in Los Angeles at the Netflix headquarters. Uh, the most recent update I got from him was he saw about a dozen. Uh, Netflix employees walk out, uh, many of them wearing apparently rainbow masks. Uh, they declined to talk to the media, uh, but presumably this dozen people uh, are among the trans employees at Netflix uh, walking out on the job. That That's to be distinguished from the, the rally outside Netflix headquarters, which was organized a few days ago, and that is uh, a lot of people expressing their feelings, mostly for the group, some protesters were, are there in support of Dave Chappelle, uh, but none of those people, or not many of those people, work at Netflix. Marco, ballpark figure, how many people work for Netflix now? Wow, that you, you stumped me on that one. I, I don't know how many, but certainly uh, many, many thousands since the company was formed in 1997 uh, in Northern California. It's obviously become a, 
a global powerhouse and a, and a very well-regarded content creator. I think they won 44 Emmys this year alone, and they've got upwards of a couple hundred million subscribers. So the point is it's a global company with a global footprint, and these employees are saying, look, if you want to continue to, to have the support of a variety of communities, including the trans community, uh, you need to listen when we say this is not okay. Didn't some of the employees take action against Netflix and they were suspended and then reinstated? Yeah, so essentially what happened was I think about a four employees uh, total were, were, were suspended slash dismissed and three were rehired. The, the three that were rehired apparently showed up on a virtual uh, meeting of, of senior executives that they were not supposed to be at and so they used that as a pretense for letting them go. They rehired those three. The one person who was permanently let go is apparently the uh, trans employee who leaked documents that, that indicated how much uh, Dave Chappelle's show cost Netflix, among other things. That was about $24 million. That's right. Yeah. And it already has had a viewership of about $10 million. What? Give me the genesis, if you could. I, I've, I've heard the somewhat vulgar excerpt that, you know, where Dave Chappelle's talking about female anatomy and comparing it to, you know, certain products you can find in the supermarket nowadays. But this goes back to author J.K. Rowling from his previous special. That's how this all started. Can you kind of give us a quick tutorial on where this conflict lies and why it's so insulting to the trans community? Yeah, essentially it goes back to this uh, special he did called Sticks and Stones a few years ago where he um, supported J.K. Rowling, who herself has sort of expressed, uh, you know, her views on on people electing uh, to, to be other than male or female. And, and, and what she said has been uh, described as her feeling sort of uh, threatened, her own sexuality being threatened by this. And and Dave in his previous special came out sort of supporting her, and then he's, he sort of joked that the alphabet people were after him or not happy with him, that that was a reference to the L L LGBTQ community. So that was that show. And then in this one, he sort of doubled down and, and essentially made some jokes about how, uh, look, we, we all come into this world through yeah, between women. the legs of a female exactly <laughs> to quote Dave. Um, so he basically was doubling down and so the community at netflix was like look we're concerned that by by broadcasting this you're going to um create violence against us and and um that was their concern it wasn't so much what dave said it was that what dave said could be used to inflame people who have these negative views of the trans community, which could lead to violence. So that, that's one of their main concerns. Does this go away after today in the virtual walkout and the protests and the counter-protests, uh, or is this going to have another news cycle or two, in your opinion? And have any other celebrities jumped on board this so they can get their you know, 15 minutes of sunshine from the latest controversy? Well, a number of, of celebrities uh, appeared in a public service announcement that uh, was put together and I think also, you know, made available to the Netflix co-CEO, Ted Sarandos. Um, they are a mix of folks uh, from network shows and uh, 
and a lot of folks from from Netflix shows, and some of them are uh, from um, sort of marginalized communities, and, and some are not, and they just were expressing support and saying, "Look, you, you need to stand up for yourself, and we support you." So, so there is there is that out there. As for how long this is going to last, it's a very good question. It really depends on how much Netflix feel like they have to do anything about it beyond perhaps Sarandos last night saying, okay, I, I was not sensitive enough and I should have said, look, I'm, I'm sorry, this offends you, but. And if he stays with that and nothing changes and there are no disclaimers, it remains to be seen if the, the trans uh, employee community uh, manages to get others at Netflix to support them and, and create an even bigger walkout. And then we'll all wait for Chappelle's next special to see if he references this one again. I have a feeling he's been very, he's a very sort of resolute guy in terms of saying, this is my perspective. He doesn't seem to be somebody who uh, is moved by protests. So my guess is we're not going to see much uh, shifting from Dave Chappelle on this. <laughs> I, think you're, I think you're spot on there, Marco. Thank you very much, Marco Delacava. We'll read more at USA Today, and thanks for your time this evening. My pleasure. John Howell, Essential Cuts. Check back every weekday for another episode of John Howell, Essential Cuts on 890 WLS.